turn to Luke chapter 8. As you do there, I think of that uh, song that we sang, It Is Well With My Soul, and the fellow who wrote that, Horatio Spafford, and the loss that he endured uh, before writing that song. You know, most of you probably heard the story how crossing the Atlantic uh, just a couple weeks prior, his wife and daughters had been in a shipwreck. He lost his daughters. They all perished. His wife was saved alone. So when he was going over afterwards to meet his wife, then following up, he, uh, the steamer stopped to remember that ship at that location. And he retired below and wrote that song. And he wasn't as much focused on the loss of his family, though he was uh, wearied uh, by that challenge He was most focused on Christ and his sin that had been nailed to the cross, not in part, but the whole. And Horatio Spafford seemed to recognize that we weren't saved for this world, we were saved from this world. And he looked forward to the day that he would join his daughters again. As we look at this crisis that the disciples found themselves in. Luke chapter 8, beginning in verse 22. We'll look at how we can conquer our fears through faith as Christ has asked them, where is their faith? I'll begin reading in verse 22. Now, on one of those days, Jesus and his disciples got into a boat. And he said to them, let us go over to the other side of the lake. So they launched out, but as they were sailing along, he fell asleep. And a fierce gale of wind descended on the lake. And they began to be swamped and to be in danger. They came to Jesus and woke him up saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. And Jesus got up and rebuked the wind and the surging waves and they stopped and it became calm. And Jesus said to them, Where is your faith? They were fearful and amazed saying to one another, Who then is this that he commands even the winds and the water? And they obey Him. Great question. Folks, as I think back in time, perhaps uh, you will as well, thinking at your past. Um, I don't know if you've ever had a near-death experience. I have not, honestly. I mean, I've been in situations where I could have died. I nearly wrecked a snowmobile at a high rate of speed when I was very young. I probably should have died. But I didn't. I walked away uninjured. There was another time where I got a severe infection in the throat. They call it epiglottitis. And uh, I made it to the hospital in time where they were able to uh, minimize uh, those symptoms. But had I not had medical attention, I could have died. But I've never been in a situation where I was screaming for my life, wondering if at the next moment I would be perishing. Um, I've never experienced that. I've never recalled a situation like that anyhow. Um, I don't know exactly what that fight for survival is like at the last moment. Some of our military veterans here might. The Sea of Galilee, it could become a perilous body of water. It's actually just a large lake. Uh, Long end... Uh, To end, it was about eight miles. A large lake, significant body of water. Uh, There were 
hills rising around the circumference of it. It sat 700 feet below sea level. The surface, because of that, was subject to sweeping winds that would come down and sudden violent storms. You know, we had a small river that passed by our farm up in North Dakota. And as you'd come over the hills uh, to go down and then cross over uh, that river, a drop of about 30 feet is all it was. But in, in the humid summers, you'd drop and the temperature would change. You'd feel the thickness of the air. It was almost kind of eerie as you'd go down in the dark and cross over uh, the water. That's just 30 feet. I've not experienced the effect on this lake, but Peter and his crew had. They weren't newbies to the water or this particular sea. They were seasoned fishermen. They were experienced sailors on this body of water. They had battled many a storm on the Sea of Galilee, and they likely probably would not be crying out if they thought that they could manage this storm. They didn't think that they could manage this storm. It was a bad one. It wasn't manageable. In fact, it terrified them to death. We aren't provided a period of time which they battled or endured this storm. We only know from Mark chapter 4, verse 35, that they launched the boat in the evening. So it was late in the day. Um, I anticipate by the time the storm, clo- uh, storm clouds rolled in, and covered with the sun going down late in the day. I anticipate it became pretty dark. Um, Mark and Matthew both described this wind as seizing their boat like a fierce gale. They suggest the waves were breaking over the sides of the boat. Our Luke passage simply indicates that the boat was being swamped. I've got a couple pictures here I'd like to share with you. The first one would be a typical style of boat from that time period. In fact, it's even the Sea of Galilee that is uh, in the back, in the setting. And the boat that they were on probably would have been about this size. Maybe it was a little larger, we don't know for sure. But uh, of this design with a mast in the center, and that's what the disciples would have been on, that type of boat. I've got another one, another photo of what Rembrandt's interpretation of this is. That's his... uh, his painting called The Storm on the Sea of Galilee. And so that's his rendition with the stern here towards the bottom and the right and them fighting against the waves. Beautiful picture bringing things to life. You know, when they departed on that day, it was a typical day. Just another day. And Jesus, their Lord, said, let us go over to the other side. So they agreed and and launched as they always had. No different than any other day. We need to realize that unexpected crises, when they come, they come without warning, folks. That's why they call them crises. They're unpredictable. They're sudden. If... uh, This crew had known that the crisis was going to arise. They wouldn't have gone out on the water. They didn't know it was coming. You know, the crew of the Edmund Fitzgerald, if you're familiar with that shipwreck, it was a 728-foot freighter. It was doomed on Lake Superior in a a cruel November storm. Went down in deep waters outside, I believe it was outside of Cleveland. And surely that crew, 
when they left Duluth, Minnesota, they wouldn't have gone out a few days earlier had they known they were going to encounter 35-foot waves, right? They wouldn't have given their lives just so Gordon Lightfoot could have wrote a famous song about them, right? You'll be Googling that after the service, I know. A famous song by Gordon Lightfoot about the Edmund Fitzgerald. It's haunting, in, in fact. But God, in His wisdom, He doesn't permit us to know what day tragedy will come knocking at our door. We don't know. Any morning we arise, any journey on which we might embark, that could spell the end. It could be it. And that fear of what might happen, that can become paralyzing to folks. It can become paralyzing. Some people struggle to leave their home because of fear of the unknown of what might happen. It's a clinical name for that. I don't know what it is. Others will refuse to go to the doctor because they fear what they might discover. Some will skip a promising job interview because they have a fear of being rejected or changing careers. Some will never attend a prom because they're afraid to ask a cute girl on a date. It's fear. It stops us. It paralyzes us. It can shut us down. It can prevent us from experiencing life at its fullest, everything that God has given us to enjoy, everything He offers. Now, a caution here before we get deeper into this. Some fear is good. A concern for unforeseen events, it can prevent us from making some very foolish decisions at the last minute, impulsive decisions. But when fear prevents us from functioning, enjoying a normal life, a normal, typical day, that becomes a problem. That becomes a problem. You might be surprised how many people, maybe even some amongst us here today, are affected by that, affected by fear. Fear of the unknown, even when the skies look clear. A person, especially a Christian, should not fear rising in the morning and driving to work. A soldier or a police officer should not fear the hazards of the day while they're on patrol. A person should not fear what might happen on an airplane when going on vacation. (laughs) Statistically, it's much safer than driving. We all know that. Christians should not fear faithfully sharing the gospel and what they might encounter. Yet, on any of these occasions, any of these types of occasions, something bad might happen, right? Something bad could happen. These are our normal daily activities, just like, well, just like fishermen who might climb on a boat on a typical day. A boat that they've climbed on many times before a sea they've crossed on previous occasions. It was, it was a typical day. I have no idea what was on Jesus' mind when he climbed on board. Follow me close here. I'm not even sure whether he knew the storm was coming. Let me explain. Or, perhaps, if Jesus proceeded as he did on numerous occasions with limited omniscience, or or rather um, limitations imposed by his own humanity, self-limited knowledge, confined to his humanity, there are things that Jesus didn't know. Did you realize that? He did not know the hour of his return. 
Find that in Mark 13, verse 32. He didn't immediately know with the, with the woman with the hemorrhage. Didn't immediately know who had touched him. Mark 5, verse 30. And he prayed in Gethsemane, not knowing for certain whether God might be able to turn away the cup of wrath. He prayed that somehow that might pass him by. Luke 22, verse 44. Other times, he saw Nathanael under the fig tree. He knew every thoughts of the men surrounding him. For the life of me, I don't have any idea how this worked, folks. On this occasion, my impression is that by limits self-imposed through his humanity, that Jesus didn't realize this particular storm was coming. Some theologians propose that when Jesus emptied himself, Philippians 2 verse 7, he emptied himself taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, that at that point Jesus left the attributes of his deity entirely at the disposal of the Father as the Son walked the earth by faith. I'm still developing this in my thinking and my theology. I I kind of lean that way. I, I lean to the point that Christ was never less than God. He was never less than divine or less than royalty. But during his walk on earth, the Son relied on God the Father to supply him with whatever he needed to know. With whatever powers he needed to carry out the Father's divine will. That would mean that Jesus didn't need to know everything all the time. If he was walking with his 12 disciples, he didn't need to know every one of their thoughts continuously all the time. God the Son didn't need to know that. Christ's walk in the flesh was a genuine walk of faith and reliance upon God. Scripture says, John verse two, uh, chapter 2, verse 24, He did not entrust himself to men, for he knew all men. Because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. So he didn't entrust himself to man. Instead, we read in 1 Peter 2.23, Jesus kept on entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. Who's that? God. Jesus entrusted himself to God all the way to the day when he bore our sins in his body on the cross. Jesus trusted his Father to provide him with whatever he needed for whatever occasion that was. So with Scripture, using Scripture, you're going to eventually need to bend your mind around that. Alright? I'm still working on it. How did that humanity and deity and omniscience and self-limitations, self-imposed by Christ, work when he humbled himself, becoming in the likeness of man. But what I would like to convey is that I don't think Jesus knew everything right before it happened. And I primarily want to suggest to you today that he wasn't simply acting when he fell asleep. See why I came to this? I don't think Jesus was just toying with his disciples here, all right? You know how we do with our children? It's like you're laying down on the couch and you're on the pillow and you got one eye open. And they're asking if you're awake and no, 
but you're awake, and you're just kind of toying with them or playing with them. Maybe you do that with your spouse sometimes, you're awake. I, didn't, I never do that. No, my, my impression was that Jesus was genuinely sleeping. He was sleeping. And in verse 23, as they were sailing along, Jesus fell asleep. The Gospel of Mark indicates that Jesus was lying at the stern, asleep on a cushion. The Bible seems to invite us to conclude, the reader to conclude, that Jesus was really asleep, folks. Christ incarnate dwelled in a human body with limitations and needs of a human body. He became hungry, he became thirsty, he became tired, and he slept. He was the God that became man. And after a long day of preaching and teaching and healing, he was physically exhausted. A lot like us. A lot like us. There are studies, I have no idea how scientific they are, but they suggest 30 minutes of public speaking exhausts as much physical and emotional energy as a typical eight-hour shift. That may or may not be a stretch. I, I don't know. But I do know that preaching is very fatiguing. For about 40 minutes, onlookers, they scrutinize every word, they evaluate every facial expression, and you should. And preachers realize that accountability while bringing God's word to bear on the the human soul, that 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 stress that comes with that, that, that's part of the territory. That's part of the territory. I can't, however, even imagine... The strain involved with preaching all day long. Especially when you're confronted regularly by Pharisees who are doubting you and trying to trip you up in what you say and and you know in their hearts from Scripture that they're already wanting to to kill him. Add to this the crowds which have grown increasingly large, Luke tells us, and the volume of people, they're clamoring to be healed Physical and emotional burdens had become enormous on Christ. Jesus was a man. He was an actual man. So after climbing on board and setting sail, Jesus went into a deep sleep. He was sleeping. It's after Jesus falling asleep that Luke tells us a fierce gale of wind descended on the lake and they began to be swamped and to be in danger. The waves are large enough where they're breaking over the sides of their little boat to the point that they are in perilous danger. In verse 24 it says, They came to Jesus and woke Him saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. In fact, if you look at Matthew's account, they add to that, Lord, save us! It's our seasoned sailors here. Meanwhile, Christ is asleep. He's asleep, contentedly asleep. Why do we think, why, why do we anticipate the others in the boat? Men, possibly some women as well. Why wouldn't we think that they are also exhausted from their labors, also tired from the ministry, weary? Why weren't they sleeping as the waves were crashing? 
Why do they fear for their lives while Jesus is at rest? Ever thought about that? There isn't a physical difference. What's categorically different from these disciples to Jesus? He is a man. He had all the physical attributes of humanity. Sometimes we forget, folks, just how human Jesus was. We accept easily that he's fully divine. We forget sometimes he was also fully human. He walked the earth as a man, the God-man. When it comes to this crisis, Scripture provides one primary difference. You ready for it? Here's where the disciples glean a badly needed lesson. A badly needed lesson. Especially in the next chapter, chapter 9, Jesus is going to deputize them as we go into the next chapter and send them out on their own alone. Their own ministry. They're going to be out on their own. Do you think before the disciples face the challenges and demands of ministry on their own that maybe they could use a little remedial training on who is actually in charge of everything? In charge of everything? In verse 24, Jesus got up and rebuked the wind and the surging waves, and they stopped, and it became calm. Mark says, perfectly calm. Immediately perfectly calm. And then Jesus exposes to the reader and to them the difference between him and them. Or is it he and they? Him and them. I'm going to go with that. Ruth isn't with us today, is she? Our English professor. Jesus exposes the difference. He says to them, Where is your faith? Faith is the difference underscored by Christ. There exists no difference in their humanity. Every person in the boat was fully human. Jesus does not credit his deity as the reason he remained calm. If his deity were the reason that he remained calm, he would have had no basis to criticize the disciples for having become afraid. In his critique of them, Jesus credits something he insists they too should have possessed. Where is your faith? Faith made the only difference. Faith is the only thing that they were lacking. That's the reason they were all panicking and Jesus was asleep on the pillow. The disciples weren't assessing who was really in control of the waves. Well, Jesus never doubted who was in control of the waves. The reason you and I fail to rest in peace when crises come is we forget ultimately who is the captain of our ship. We forget all about that. Who's in control? We've forgotten who is in charge of the waves that batter us from the sides in life. We've lost sight of who is in control of our medical diagnosis. We ignore who ultimately undergirds the financial markets. By comparison, throughout church history, it has been the martyrs who courageously stared death in the face because they actually believe that God is in control of everything, ultimately. 
Pontius Pilate told Jesus, You do not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and I have authority to crucify you? Jesus answered, You would have no authority over me unless it had been given to you from above. John 19. Romans 13, verse 1. There is no authority except from God. God's in control. Christians then don't need to fear persecution by kings. Why? Proverbs 21.1 The king's heart is like channels of water. Some translations say the king's heart is like the river. God's hand turns, turns it wherever he wishes. God hardened Pharaoh's heart until Israel was set free. Then in Exodus 12, verse 36, we read that the Lord had given the Israelites favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that the Egyptians let them have their requests for silver and gold and clothes. Thus Israel plundered the Egyptians. God even turned the king of Assyria's heart toward Israel in order to encourage them so that Israel might finish the work on the temple. That's in Ezra chapter 6, verse 22. How did the Apostle Paul courageously face a trial before Caesar that led to his execution? When we have faith that God is in control, complete control, of kings and all who are in authority, we can submit ourselves to them just as Romans 13 verse 3 requires us to without fear. Even if it results in religious persecution and death. No fear. That applies to us. We're not talking about the Son of God here. Christians, no fear. Secondly, when we consider things like disease, that'll affect most of us sooner or later. Or how soon or by what manner we might die. Earl Baker has crossed this bridge. Psalm 139, verse 16, written by King David, assures us this. In God's book were written all the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not one of them. Job 14, verse 5, reminds us, The number of our days and months are set, and those limits set we cannot pass. Even Hezekiah, when he became mortally ill and was told by the prophet Isaiah to put his house in order, because the Lord is saying, you will surely die. Even when Hezekiah was granted a reprieve of 15 years, God still determined the limit. God sets a limit. Jesus has already shown us throughout Luke, there's not one illness God can't heal if he wants to. Christ healed while on earth to validate the claim that He was God's representative on earth. Scripture says that Christ then delegated those same powers to His disciples to validate their claims that they are Christ's representatives on earth. Our mistake is failing to recognize that Christ never delegated those powers to us. We're not in control. But God is. God is still in control of every and all disease. There's nothing to fear. God is not any less in control of your anatomy 
and your physiology than he was King Hezekiah's. God gave certain prophets and apostles powers to heal. That power was always delegated from God. Always delegated by God. It was not in the man. And today, as we look at life, is, is now in the New Testament, is the Lord's hand today shortened? No. No, God says, my hand is not short. I suggest not. In preparation to lead Israel, this is during the Exodus, God said this to Moses. Let's, get a, let's wrap our minds around this. God said to Moses, put your hand into your bosom. So Moses put his hand into his bosom, and when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. Then God said, put your hand into your bosom again. So Moses put his hand into his bosom again, and when he took it out of his bosom, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. The Lord did worse to Miriam for seven days. On day seven, he immediately restored her health. Immediately. Genesis 18, verse 14, There is nothing too hard for the Lord. If God wants you to be well, you will be well. God doesn't need faith healers to reverse leprosy. Throughout the history of the Bible, the truth is that very few people during very brief periods of time, by the way, were actually healed of diseases. Very small period of time, uh, periods during the Bible. In fact, even with Jesus, only about 10% of his life, about, about three years, were characterized with healing to validate that he was the promised Messiah. Because of the curse in the garden, unless the rapture comes first, most of us will die. All of us will die. Our days are already numbered. Folks, Luke asks us, who through worrying can add a single hour to their life? Why fear? Why worry? It's in Luke chapter 22. You know, I think of what pops in my head with this today is we're doing everything in our life to try to preserve our life. We don't want to be foolish with our life, but I think of things like diet. And, and there are certain people that just can't function with certain foods. They have intolerance, they have allergies, other things, all well and good. But you'd think by watching the doctors on TV today that we're planning to live forever. If you just avoid gluten and and, and, and sugars and, and other things. That, oh, you're just going to extend your life indefinitely. We're not, folks. That's denying the curse. Creation is cursed. The wages of sin is death. We're going to die. It doesn't mean we, need, we should be flippant about things that are obviously bad for us. But we're not going to preserve our life forever by a better diet. That's what the world thinks. That's why it's one of the biggest industries in America. Every month, a brand new diet coming out. Denies the curse. Be wise with your eating. Oh, Rita's going to hold me to that when we get home. 
Christians don't fear martyrdom. Our days are numbered. We need not fear disease. God is in control of everything. Unhindered control. Furthermore, God controls the weather. When asked, where is your faith? Verse 25 describes the disciples as this. Fearful and amazed, saying to one another, Who then is this that he commands even the winds and the water and they obey him? Well, Psalm 107 that we read earlier in our scripture reading, that answers that question. Who controls the waves? God. Jesus is God. Jesus controls the waves. And after having spent a considerable amount of time with Jesus by now, the disciples are still trying to figure him out. They're still trying to get it. We might say they were learning as they go. Are you learning more about Jesus as time passes? Learning more about Him? You know, when I was first saved, there are many things that I didn't know about Jesus or about God. Today there remain plenty that I don't know about God. But what I do know is I'm growing in understanding of God. I'm progressing slowly from milk to meat to really understand who God is. One of the more substantial or weighty doctrines of the faith, the Christian faith, that we are learning a bit more today is the sovereignty of God. I understood little about this when I was first saved. I was still a Christian. I understood little. I understand a little more today. But as we've learned together today, God is sovereign over your time of birth, your day of death. He has unhindered power to prevent and reverse a medical condition if He so desires. Who then is this that he commands even the winds and the waves and and they obey him? Have you discovered the answer to that question? Who is this Jesus? When Scripture says that in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form, do you get it? Do you understand who Jesus is? For Colossians 1 verse 15 assures us that He, referring to Christ, He is the image of the invisible God, the preeminent of all creation. For by Christ all things were created both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through Him and for Him. John 1 verse 2, speaking of the Word, Remember in the beginning was the Word? Verse 2. The Word, meaning Christ, was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him, and apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. Are we getting a sense of who Christ is? What the disciples are incrementally coming to understand is that Jesus is not only the Creator of the heavens and the earth, but that He, the Son of God, is also the sustainer of the heavens and the earth and the waves and the sea and even their own lives. 
Colossians 1.17, in Him, in Christ, all things hold together. It's all about Him. So rather than a God who stands afar, far away during life's calamities, they're beginning to recognize that God is one who's very close to them in their trials. Folks, He's even sitting in the boat. Christ is here with us today. In spirit, through His Holy Spirit. And rather than a creator who made all things and set time in motion then stepped aside just for human history to work itself out somehow, that typifies Islam, by the way. God created everything and He stepped aside and He's just letting everything kind of work its way out without being intimately in control. Rather than that, the disciples are learning the true and living God is He who is in control of every single wave that hits the boat. Everything. Everything that crashes into your life, Christ is in control. Everything. Matthew 10, Not one sparrow will fall to the ground and be forgotten before God. Indeed, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear, for you are more valuable than many sparrows. Do not fear. Jesus asks, asks us today, where is your faith? Can we understand now or or recognize why Jesus is resting on the pillow while the disciples are panicking? Screaming for some way to save their lives. It's because Jesus knows that His Father is in complete control of the situation. Complete control. If that is the case, and it is, what could there possibly be for us to fear? What could there be to fear? If the ship goes down, Peter, it goes down because God permits it to go down. That doesn't suggest you don't adjust the sails or bail water. It means you don't have to fear. Rita and I are flying to Dallas later this week. We're going to reestablish or just see our church after four years had not been back. If our plane crashes, it crashes. We don't want it to crash. But God's in control. There's nothing to fear. Now, if one wing looks like it has a gaping crack in it, we probably won't get on. Like my mom used to say, and, and God would tell us today, use your head. Use your head. Obviously, God doesn't suggest that we presume He will protect us, nor does He ask us to determine ourselves the proper time to die. He says, use your head. Make the best possible choices that you can with the information that's at your disposal. Um, Don't fear. God's in control. I should probably get a physical. I'm sure Rita will follow up on that as well. I shouldn't be presumptuous that God will preserve my health. But I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. As we come to a close, each of us should notice this is a theological premise or a conclusion that progresses from the argument of the greater to the lesser. You know what I'm talking about? 
if God is in ultimate control of things like decisions made by our kings and all who are in authority, our date of expiration, the diseases of our body and the peril of life sees, which he is, that is biblical Christianity, that God is in control. And if we're supposed to trust him in things so significant as these, how can we not also trust him with the smaller things, like our finances and our job interviews and our legal matters? Christians are commanded to sail through life without fearing the waves. They might someday come crashing down, but God's in control. How do we do that? By faith in God, the real God that the Bible teaches, the true and living God. Faith is not attracting good luck to ourselves through positive thinking. That's not what faith is. Faith is believing that God is sovereignly in control of every wave, big or small, that splashes. It would be impossible for us to preserve our lives simply by refusing to set sail. We can't do that. Folks, raise your canvas and sail. Sail through life and pursue your heart's desires. At night, lay down your head and rest because there is absolutely nothing to worry about. Not even your own life. Perform your best. Make wise and prudent decisions. Obey God's statutes. Trust in Him. Through Scripture, increasingly come to, to know and understand who Christ is. Become more intimate with Him. And the remedy to all our fears, large and small, to all our fears, is to understand and know God. That's it. To understand and know God. Jesus said in John 14, verse 1, Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. I'll close with this familiar passage from Luke 12, verses 25 to 32. For which of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to his lifespan? If then you cannot do even a very little thing, why do you worry about other matters? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. But I tell you, not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass in the field, which is alive today, and tomorrow is cast into the furnace, how much more will he clothe you, you men of little faith? And do not seek what you will eat or what you will drink, and do not keep worrying. <laughs> For all these things the nations of the world eagerly seek. But your Father knows that you need these things. Seek His kingdom first, and all these things will be added to you. Do not be afraid, little flock. For your Father has chosen gladly to give you the kingdom. That is our end, the kingdom Sell your possessions and give to charity. Make yourselves money belts which do not wear out. An unfailing treasure in heaven where no thief comes near nor moth destroys. For where your treasure is, your heart will be also.
Let's trust in him. And let's pray to him.